Good morning, everybody. This is Gary Roth, founder and CEO of the Blue Collar Consulting Group. Today, we're going to talk about episode two of Army Leadership and really leadership for everybody. What I'm doing is I'm um, working out of an old Army Leadership Manual as a guide, and let me tell you, it is an awesome reference. Now, we left off yesterday by, or not yesterday, last week, in fact, by talking about the uh, quote-unquote army's definition of leadership and that is leadership is influencing people by providing purpose direction and motivation while operating to accomplish the mission and improving the organization now the army looks at some core competencies like or they used to used to be b b e no k n o w and do so who you are what you know and then what you do. So those are the kind of main pillars of the Army leadership model. Okay. Now, of course, you know, that has changed. Um, It has, you know, it's had to be more flexible over time because let's face it, the world has changed significantly. Um, You know, leadership is appropriate in many situations. I say appropriate, but leadership qualities are appropriate in nearly any situation. You know, having integrity, and some values and honor and, and following through and, and knowing what you're doing and you know actually doing what you say you're going to do are just a few of the many things that are incorporated in the word leadership. And so, you know, be no do clearly and concisely states the characteristics of really any leader. You you know, we spoke earlier about the be no do and you know leadership is about taking action, but there's more to being a leader than just what you do. I mean, let's face it. I mean we've we see that now with the president, despite the fact that he's doing things that some people consider to be good, uh, his enemies can't get over his his character flaws and, and things like that. And so, you know, just because you do the right thing or, or whatever else, you know, that, that doesn't make you a great leader. All right. You've got to have the character competencies as well. If an axe murderer opened the door for you, that would be nice. That would be a nice thing that he or she did. But the core competency of their character is such that you wouldn't trust them with your children, hopefully. So character and competence, the be and the no, underlie everything that a leader does. So becoming a leader involves developing all aspects of yourself. This includes, you know, adopting and living a set of values in the army. We have, you know, the army values, loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. For all my army vets out there, hopefully you remember that stuff. Um, you know, it, you have to develop uh, the attributes and learning the skills of a leader. You know, you have to study other leaders. You have to know your job. You have to know the job above you and below you. Uh, only by this self-development will you become a confident and competent leader of character. Being a leader is not easy. I mean, let's face it. There's no cookie-cutter solutions to leadership challenge. There's no real shortcuts to success. You're going to have to fail. You're going to have to win. You're going to have to be average. You're going to have to be all these things so that you can draw from those experiences in the future. But the good news is the tools are available to every leader. Like the tools are out there, the stories, the 
the competencies, the skills, the experiences, the lessons, they are all out there, but it's up to the leader to actually go out there, get them, and use them. So character describes a person's inner strength. I think that we can all agree on that. The be of be, no, do, like who you are as a person. Your character helps you know what is right, uh, and more than that, it links that knowledge to action. Character gives you the courage to do what's right regardless of the circumstances or the consequences. Like here's an example from the army, okay? This is a good vignette from the army. So let's say that your boss is in your line to be graded on their physical fitness test. In the army, we have to take a physical fitness test that consists of doing as many push-ups as you can in two minutes without stopping, as many sit-ups as you can in two minutes without stopping, and then running two miles as fast as you can. And there's points and there's minimums and there's maximums and all those things. Now, when you do a push-up, you have to do a push-up a certain way. You obviously can't do it on your knees. You can't, you know, be all herky-jerky. You have to go all the way down and all the way up and things like that. So, let's say, for instance, that your boss, your supervisor, is in your line to be graded. This happens quite often. I've been in this situation, and it's difficult. And let's say that your particular leader does not do very good push-ups. Hey, Tom, good morning. Let's say... They don't do very good push-ups, and so you can't really count those, and yet this is your boss. So character in that situation it helps you do the right thing. That's also an example of moral, personal courage. So it's, it's a very difficult situation. Uh, I have failed in that situation before, but I've also succeeded. Uh, it was very uncomfortable, but I would rather go home at night knowing that I did the right thing knowing that I enforce the army standard that is enforced on me. And so, you know, it's not easy and it's uncomfortable, but the world needs good leaders and leaders that have inner character and inner strength, they go further, they live higher quality lives and they help people achieve their goals as well. So it's, it's very important. So you demonstrate character through your behavior, just like what I said. One of your key responsibilities as a leader is to teach you know, your agreed upon values to your subordinates. In the army, we teach army values to the to the lower ranking soldiers. To In your company, you may teach it to the people that report to you. Um, you know, sometimes you can even be a leader in your experience. So just the fact that you've been at a company longer gives you the opportunity to be a leader through experience. For instance, if you come in and, you know, maybe somebody is taught to operate a machine a certain way and you know some tricks of the trade, you can instill yourself as a leader by just sharing the little tricks that you've learned for years at the company. So leadership takes many forms is kind of my point. But, you know, action, you demonstrate character through your behavior. So one of your key responsibilities as a leader is to teach values to your subordinates. Again, if you've been working at a company for 20 years and you still show up on time and you still look neat and do all those things, that sends a massively clear message to the whole company. All right. And then people notice that people see that. People that do what they're supposed to do on the long term don't stay worker-level employees for a very long time. They're often promoted very rapidly. The old saying that actions speak louder than words has never been more true. You know, leaders who talk about honor and loyalty and selfless service but do not live these values, they send the wrong message. And that values stuff just becomes all talk, quote-unquote. So understanding values and leader attributes is really only the first step. You must embrace these values you must develop your leader attributes and you must live them until become actually 
you know, you can actually teach, you know, through action and example, and then you can help develop lower level leaders. You can do things that, you know, help people grow and expand and things like that. So, you know, you, you are a leader by your behavior and your character. Okay. That's, that's a core, it's a cornerstone. I mean, it is a foundational aspect of leadership that let's face it, a lot of people don't get right. And so, so moving on. So the be, the know, the do. So the know. This is where we get into knowledge. A leader must have a certain level of knowledge to be competent. Like if in the army, if the sergeant is teaching a soldier to shoot their rifle and the sergeant can't shoot a rifle to save their life, you're not going to, you know, follow them. You're not going to listen to what they have to say. They're not doing it. They suck at it. They're not going to you're not going to want to do that. Now, I'm not saying that the the leader has to be you know, perfect 40 for 40 every single time, although that helps, but they have to demonstrate a certain level of competency, a certain level of knowledge to build their, um, to build their reputation. So that knowledge is kind of spread across four skill domains. Let's look at these. So you must develop interpersonal skills. That's the knowledge of your people and how to work with them. You know, my boss right now in the army has me figured out beautifully. She knows exactly what I want. She she's a incredible support, uh, and but she also leaves me alone. She knows that I can get my work done. She knows I don't like micromanagement. She lets me do my job, and I freaking love that. I love that so very much. So interpersonal skills—that's the knowledge of your people, how to work with them. Now you must have conceptual skills which is the ability to understand and apply the doctrine and other ideas required to do your job. Conceptual. You got to be able to see the big picture here. You got to see the shaping operations. You got to see the commander's intent. You got to see where the company is going in their mission statements and things like that. Uh, next is the technical skills. That's that's basically how to use your equipment. Okay? That's you know, it's how to type, that's how to pull the levers, that's how to weld, that's how to do all the things that you're hoping to teach other people how to do. You got to have those technical skills. And then finally, tactical now tactical skills in the army is much different than in the world in the civilian world but it's still very relevant because warrior leaders must master technical skills now that's the ability to make the right decisions concerning employment of units and and equipment in combat now your version of combat in business is going to be very different so when you go to that sales meeting who do you want to bring you know you want to bring bill bob and and charlene they're your masters you want to do it you know, you want to have um, you want to have Billy, you know, on the phones, ready to go for customer service, as an example, whatever. So you want to you want to learn how to employ your people in the right fashion. Now that's tactical skills, employ the right people and software and things like that. So those are the kind of tactical skills that you would need on the civilian sector. Now combat for military people is legit combat. Combat for you, maybe a sales meeting, maybe a new project, it may be fabricating a piece of steel or something like that but you've got to know how to get these things done you know in in an efficient amount of time and things like that now tactical skills now that includes the mastery of the arts of tactics uh, appropriate to the leader's level of responsibility unit type so for instance if you're the ceo of a company you've got to put big pieces in the right place now if you're a foreman you know you've got to have two welders welding on this piece you've got to have your paint team painting on this piece and you've got to have your freaking you know, logistical teams bringing in the steel or whatever the case may be. So don't worry about the big picture too much that's outside of your outside of your lane, outside of your your wheelhouse. So just know your job, okay? 
know what little pieces are involved. I shouldn't say little pieces. Know what pieces are involved, people, equipment, strategy, whatever, and to be able to employ those as necessary. And that's tactical skills. You know, the tactical skills are amplified by interpersonal, conceptual, and technical skills. And those are the most important skills for any leader. They're most important skills for war fighters and stuff like that. So the mastery of different skills in these domains is essential to your success in business and the army's success in peace and war. I once saw a, it was a picture, I guess you call it a meme now, but it was called uh, Persuasive in Peace and Invincible in War. And that was a um, something about the army. Now what that gets into is you have to know that in the army, readiness is key. So the world has to know that if we send our army you're going to die, okay? And it's it's not to be mean or cruel, but it's meant to be a good reputation or a powerful reputation. What is your reputation in business? Do these people know that they're going to get an amazing presentation? Does your competition know if, if XYZ company comes up, are they sweating because you're coming in? You know, so what kind of reputation do you have by mastery of these skills? You know, do you have interpersonal skills? Do you have technical skills? Do other salesmen get worried when you move in on their territory? These are types of things you need to know. But now a true leader is not satisfied with knowing only how to do what will get the organization through today. All right, it's not about, it's not always just about right now, although that's a part of it. You must also be concerned about what it'll need tomorrow. You must strive to master your job and prepare to take over your supervisor's job. In addition, you must move to jobs of increasing responsibility. You're going to face new equipment, new ideas, new ways of thinking and doing things. You must learn to apply all of these to accomplish your mission, to get the job done. You're going to have to be ready for that kind of stuff. Now, Army schools teach you the basic job skills, but they are only part of the learning picture. College will, uh, you know, college will prepare you for the technical skills and things like that. Maybe some application depending on the school. You know, true leaders, good leaders are going to add to their knowledge and skills every day. You know, you've probably heard it said that, you know, you, you have to learn something new every day. You have to go forward. You have to grow. You have to expand if you want to be a good leader. Leaders that are stuck on, we've always done it this way, are truly that. They are just stuck. They are not going to go anywhere. They're probably going to do more damage to a company, things like that. But those, those visionary leaders understand what today is. They understand the success of habit. But they also know that there's new ways to do things. They know how to leverage technology and things like that. True leaders seek out opportunities. They're always looking for ways to increase their professional knowledge and their skills. You know, dedicated lower level leaders jump at the chance to fill in as that next level boss. Not because they've mastered the job, but because they know the best place to learn is in the thick of the action. Let's say, let me say that again. True leaders know that the best place to learn is in the thick of the action. Those lower level leaders, you know, challenge themselves and will learn through doing. What's more, with some coaching and mentorship, they'll learn as much from their mistakes as they do their successes. I'm a low level jujitsu guy. I make a lot of mistakes. So as you can imagine, I am learning a lot, usually at the punishment of my body. I'm nursing some sore ribs right now because of a mistake I made with a high level guy. But that's all right. You shake that off. You dust that off. You come back and you want more. Now, the final of be no do is do. Now, you read about leader actions, the do of the leadership doctrine. Um, and they include, you know, in the leadership definition, 
influencing, operating, and improving. Influencing with purpose, motivation, and direction, operating to accomplish the mission, and improving the organization. Now, influencing is making decisions, communicating those decisions, motivating people, operating the things that you do to accomplish your organization's immediate mission, like getting it done, and then improving. You know, things you do to increase the organization's capability to accomplish current or future missions, you know, leveraging technology, after action reviews, uh, bringing in new people, hiring of consultants and things like that. You, you always constantly improve the organization. So if you remember from the last episode, we talked about the, uh, the maintenance supervisor, the motor pool sergeant that, you know, did a great example of leadership, but that was in like a garrison uh, environment. That was in a peacetime environment. So what about reality? What about combat? Now, trained soldiers know what they are supposed to do, but under stress, their instincts might tell them to do something different. Fight or flight response kicks in, things like that. The exhausted, hungry, cold, wet, disoriented, and frightened soldier is more likely to do the wrong thing, like stop moving, lie down, retreat, than one not under that kind of stress. This is when the leader must step in when things are falling apart, when there seems to be no hope to get the job done. That's what true leaders do. They step in. Now, we've got a story. The fight between the 20th Regiment of Maine Volunteers and the 15th and 47th Regiments of Alabama Infantry during the Civil War illustrates what can happen when a leader acts decisively. It shows how the actions of one leader in a situation that looked totally hopeless not only saved his unit, but allowed the entire Union Army to maintain its position and defeat the Confederate invasion of Pennsylvania. The story's hero is a colonel, but it could have been a captain, a sergeant, or even a corporal. At other times and in other places, it had been. In late June 1863, General Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia passed through western Maryland and invaded Pennsylvania. For five days, the Army of the Potomac hurried to get between the Confederates and the National Capital. On 1 July, the 20th Maine received word to press on to Gettysburg. The Union Army had engaged the Confederates there, and Union commanders were hurrying all available forces to the hills south of the little town. The 20th Maine arrived at Gettysburg near midday on 2 July, after marching more than 100 miles in five days. 100 miles in five days. They had had only two hours of sleep and no hot food during the previous 24 hours. The regiment was preparing to go into a defensive position as part of the brigade commanded by Colonel Strong Vincent when a staff officer rode up to Colonel Vincent and began gesturing towards a little hill at the extreme southern end of the Union line. The hill, Little Round Top, dominated the Union position and, at the moment, was unoccupied. If the Confederates placed artillery on it, they could force the entire Union army to withdraw. The hill had been left unprotected through a series of mistakes. Wrong assumptions, the failure to communicate clearly, and the failure to check, and the situation was critical. Realizing the danger, Colonel Vincent ordered his brigade to occupy Little Round Top. He positioned the 20th Maine, commanded by Colonel Joshua Chamberlain, on his brigade's left flank, the extreme left of the Union line. Colonel Vincent told Colonel Chamberlain to hold at all hazards. On Little Round Top, Colonel Chamberlain told his company commanders the purpose and importance of their mission. 
He ordered the right flank company to tie in with the 83rd Pennsylvania and the left flank company to anchor on a large boulder. His thoughts turned to his left flank. There was nothing there except a small hollow and the rising slope of Big Round Top. The 20th Maine was literally at the end of the line. Colonel Chamberlain then showed a skill common to good tactical leaders. He imagined threats to his unit, did what he could to guard against them, and considered what he would do to meet other possible threats. Since his left flank was open, Colonel Chamberlain sent Bravo Company, commanded by Captain Walter Morrill, off to guard it and act as the necessities act as the necessities of battle required. The captain positioned his men behind a stone wall that would face the flank of any Confederate advance. There, 14 soldiers from the 2nd U.S. Sharpshooters, who had been separated from their unit, joined in. The 20th Maine had been in position only a few minutes when the soldiers of the 15th and 47th Alabama attacked. The Confederates had also marched all night and were tired and thirsty. Even so, they attacked ferociously. The Maine men held their ground, but then one of Colonel Chamberlain's officers reported seeing a large body of Confederate soldiers moving laterally behind the attacking force. Colonel Chamberlain climbed on a rock, exposing himself to enemy fire, and saw a Confederate Union, Confederate unit moving around his exposed left flank. If they outflanked him, his unit would be pushed off its position and destroyed. He would have certainly failed his mission. Colonel Chamberlain had to act fast. The tactical manuals he had so diligently studied called for a maneuver that would not work on this terrain. The colonel had to create a new maneuver, one that the soldiers could execute and execute right now. The 20th Maine was in a defensive line, two ranks deep. It was threatened by attack around its left flank, so the colonel ordered his company commanders to stretch the line to the left and bend it back to form an angle, concealing the maneuver by keeping up a steady rate of fire. The corner of the angle would be the large boulder he had pointed out earlier. The sidestep maneuver was tricky, but it was a combination of other battle drills his soldiers already knew. In spite of the terrible noise that made voice commands useless, in spite of the blinding smoke and the cries of the wounded and the continuing Confederate attack, the main men were able to pull it off. Now Colonel Chamberlain's thin line was only one rank deep. His units covering twice the normal frontage went back into an L-shape. Minutes after Colonel Chamberlain repositioned his force, the Confederate infantry, moving up what they thought was an open flank, were thrown back by a redeployed left wing of the 20th Maine. Surprised and angry, they nonetheless attacked again. The men from Maine rallied and held. The Confederates regrouped and attacked. The Alabamians drove the Maine men from their positions five times, and five times they thought their way back again. At some places, the muzzles of the opposing guns almost touched. After these assaults, the main men were down to one or two rounds per man, and they determined, and the determined Confederates were regrouping for another try. Colonel Chamberlain saw that he could not stay where he was and could not withdraw, so he decided to counterattack. His men would have the advantage of attacking down the steep hill, he reasoned, and the Confederates would not be expecting it. Clearly, he was risking his entire unit, but the fate of the Union Army depended on these men. The decision left Colonel Chamberlain with another problem. There was nothing in the tactics book about how to get his unit from their L-shaped position into a line of advance. Under tremendous fire and the midst of the battle, Colonel Chamberlain again called his commanders together. He explained that the regiment's left wing would swing around like a barn door on a hinge until it was even with the right wing. Then the entire regiment, bayonets fixed, 
would charge downhill, staying anchored to the 83rd Pennsylvania on its right. The explanation was clear, and the situation was clearly desperate. When Colonel Chamberlain gave the order, First Lieutenant Holman Melcher of Foxtrot Company leaped forward and led the left wing downward toward the surprised Confederates. Colonel Chamberlain had positioned himself at the boulder at the center of the L. When the left wing was abreast of the right wing, he jumped off the rock and led the right wing down the hill. The entire regiment was now charging online, swinging like a great barn door, just as the commander had intended. The Alabama soldiers, stunned at the sight of the charging Union troops, fell back on the positions behind them. There the 20th Maine's charge might have failed if not for a surprise resulting from Colonel Chamberlain's foresight. Just then, C Captain Morrow's Bravo Company and the sharpshooters opened fire on the Confederate flank and the rear. The exhausted and shattered Alabama regiments thought they were being surrounded. They broke and ran, not realizing that one more attack, one more attack would have carried the hill. The slopes of Little Round Top were littered with bodies. Saplings halfway up the hill had been sawed in half by weapons fire. A third of the 20th Maine had fallen, 130 men of 386. Nonetheless, the farmers, woodsmen, and fishermen from Maine, under the command of a brave and creative leader who had anticipated enemy action, improvised under fire, and applied discipline initiative in the heat of battle, had fought through to victory. Leadership is not always in an office. Leadership is not always on the battlefield. But decisive and thoughtful action will always win in the heat of battle. Again, my name is Gary Roth, Blue Collar Consulting Group. Thank you for listening to Leadership Volume 2. I hope that my words and the words of the Army were inspirational and useful to you. Hope to catch you on the next one. Feel free to follow me anywhere, Blue Collar Consulting Group. I'm on all over social media at BCCG underscore Main, like Main Street. And I hope you guys are all and gals are all doing well. Thank you again for listening, and I hope to catch you on the next one. Take care.